I'm going to read a couple of portions of Scripture. The first one is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and it says, The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come from hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. And now Psalm 104, verse 10 through 15. He makes springs, pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the air nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. Well, good morning. Hey, welcome to Grace. Glad you're all here. Um, Before we get rolling this morning, I have a few people to thank. First of all, thank you, Herb, uh, for filling in for me on a pinch. Uh, I got a phone call about 7.30 a.m. on Sunday saying, Herb, you're on. Uh, So thank you for doing that. I want to thank everyone also just for praying for us and uh, for the birth of our fourth child, which should be right there. There's number four. Uh, His name's Dever Deacon. Thank you so much for your prayers. And uh, he's doing fine. Mama's doing fine. Uh, But we certainly covet your continued prayers as we transition uh, here at home. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them at this point in time. If you didn't bring your own Bible, go ahead and and look for a Bible in the pew back in front of you. Always a wonderful thing to bring your Bible. I've got mine right here, and uh, turn with me to the book of Philippians. That's where we're going to be for the majority of our sermon as we continue on in our sermon series covering what uh, has historically been called the seven deadly sins. And today we're going to cover one that's going to be fun for all of us, gluttony. Philippians chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Chapter 3, starting in verse 15, and we'll work our way all the way through the end of the chapter. So uh, as you're getting there, uh, turning to Philippians 3, I want to ask that uh, let's pray real fast, and then we'll dive right in as we uh, explore uh, the temptation of gluttony. So let's pray. Philippians chapter 3. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for the, for the privilege that it is to sing songs to you. Uh, it is good for us to lift our voices in praise to you. It's good for us. It gladdens our hearts, and it's glorifying to you to have your name be praised. Father, we pray this morning that you would give us help and grace as we look into this holy and altogether inspired and uh, without error, your holy word that you've preserved uh, for us through the ages that um, is our guide. It is our authority for life and belief, in particular, as we look at what we put in our mouth and how we eat and what we drink. Father, this is so significant because we are all involved in eating and drinking, and you have given us all things from your hand, uh, food and drink, for our, uh, both for our provision and for our enjoyment, and it is good. Thank you for this good gift and the abundance of food and drink that we have here in this country. Your hand is mighty upon us, and we thank you for it. And yet we all know in our hearts that we don't exactly have all the time a right relationship with food. Like every good thing, our heart's inclination is to make it into a god, an idol. And so help us, we pray, if we're fighting 
when we fight, when we find ourselves in the grip of gluttony, may we turn to your goodness and grace to overcome it for our good and for your glory. And we ask it in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said together, amen, amen. So I want to begin with a quick story. I think all of us have a relative like my uncle Clifford. At least most of us, as we think about, if not our immediate family, most likely our extended family, um, maybe you have a relative like I do, my uncle Clifford. I love Uncle Clifford. He is my favorite uncle by far. Uh, He's a great guy. He is a prankster. He's a jokester. He loves to tell jokes. He loves to play pranks. He's just a fun, loving, energetic, upbeat kind of a guy. He's the kind of an uncle, just for example, he's the kind of an uncle who maybe as a child you would avoid initially at all costs because you might just be uh, uh, held hostage by him. He might just grab you upside down, hold you by your ankles, and tickle you until you pee your pants. I'm just saying it's a possibility, not that it ever happened to me or anything, but it could happen with my Uncle Clifford, right? He's, he's that kind of a guy, and he does all of it in the name of love. Trey, I'm just doing it because I love you, right? He's that kind of an uncle. I don't know if you have a family member like that. If you don't, then maybe consider yourself lucky, um, but I do. And I love my Uncle Clifford. Now, another thing that I want to share about my Uncle Clifford, and we'll connect some dots here, is he is a very good cook. Not just a cook, but he makes some good old-fashioned Texas barbecue. So if you've had barbecue before, um, you haven't had it, so you go to Texas. So I'm just telling you, go to Texas and have some real barbecue. We have brisket, chopped brisket, ribs, all sorts of uh, good stuff done right. No offense to, to barbecue up here. I think my Uncle Clifford probably makes the best barbecue brisket in all of Texas. Of course, I'm a little partial, but it's it's not a rare thing on family gatherings, Christmas, Thanksgiving, it doesn't really matter. We want him to make his brisket, right? And so he makes brisket, and we all have a hefty meal with all sorts of sides and and desserts. And you know how family meals go, right? There's always more food than you need, and it kind of sits out, and you're just kind of tempted to keep picking at it a little bit, because it's there, and it's oh so good, in particular the brisket. And I recall, it's not all, all uncommon, after we're all done eating, for us to sit down on the couch, me, my uncle, my dad, and the men of the family, and do what we do in Texas on Sunday afternoons. Uh, no, it's not playing cricket. We watch football, and uh, we watch the Dallas Cowboys, because it is, by the way, America's team. So we would watch uh, America's team play football. And it's not uncommon for my Uncle Clifford to kind of sit in the lazy lazy boy, his recliner, kind of sit back a little bit, say something like, boy, I'm such a good cook. (laughs) Something like that, some kind of snide remark. And then this is what he would do. He would kind of sit back, unbutton the top button of his pants, right, and say, oh, that's better. (laughs) I think I ate a little bit too much. Every time we'd eat brisket, or any meal for that matter, that, that's kind of what he would do. And I love my Uncle Clifford. So, you know, I think we all have been in his shoes, haven't we? Family meal, good food, we kind of sit back afterwards and we just think, eh, I maybe had a little bit more than I should have, right? We've all, we've all been there, maybe after a Thanksgiving meal, right? You know, maybe one more a helping of turkey and dressing that we, that we really needed, or maybe one more trip to the buffet just because the dessert was, was looking good, or maybe one more piece of pecan pie or pick your favorite kind of pie, right? We all have been there before. And I would suggest to you that we all, like my Uncle Clifford, kind of chuckle at it and we kind of 
Uh, don't think of it very much. Oh, I'm such a good cook and kind of pat our bellies and then watch our football, right? We don't really take it maybe as seriously as, as maybe we should. One author calls gluttony, quote, the most acceptable sin in American Christianity. Do you think that's true? It just, it's a question. Do you think that gluttony could be the most acceptable sin in American Christianity? I don't know whether that's true or false, but my hope is that we are going to kind of begin a journey of, of together this morning taking what we eat and how we drink, what we do with our bodies, uh, seriously. And here's what I'd like to do. I want to give you a preview of where we're going. First of all, I want to take a look at the idolatry of food, the worship of food, asking a couple questions. First of all, what is, idol- uh, what is, what is gluttony? And then secondly, what are its manifestations? That is, what might it look like uh, for us to be kind of in the grips of, of gluttony? So we'll, we'll take a look at the, idol of, the idolatry of food, and then we'll turn and look briefly at two dangers of food. What happens? What are the consequences in, in my life and in your life when, when we find ourselves in the grips of gluttony? And then, and then third, how do we win the fight for food, right? How do we win against gluttony? How do we take it seriously and how do we beat it? Well, we'll look at several answers to that question. So the idolatry, the danger, and then the fight for food. So let's begin where we have begun by trying to define this seven deadly sin, the idolatry of food. Let's, let's begin with a familiar opening question, right? What is gluttony? We always begin here because we need to know what we're fighting. What is gluttony? Well, at its, at its root, at its core, in its essence, gluttony is the idolatry of food. It's the idolatry of food. That is, it is the worship of fair. It's taking food too seriously. It's, it's taking food and drink to the place of not just being a good gift, but actually being a substitute God in our life. While food and drink certainly are good gifts from God, we, we saw that in the scriptures that Jay read earlier, it's a good thing, it's a good gift from, from God. What gluttony does is it actually makes them a God. It turns them into an object in which we worship. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. I think here in Philippians chapter 3, verses 15 through 21, I think we kind of get the, the best picture uh, in, in, in of what, of what gluttony could be. Here in chapter 3, verse 15, Paul is going to transition. He's been talking about his own pursuit of Christ, his own desire to become like Christ. And here in verse 15, he kind of transitions. It says this. Let's look in our Bibles together. He says, All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. That is, If we are mature in Christ, we should continue to want to be like Christ. He says, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already obtained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So he says, listen, continue to pursue Christ's likeness. Continue to pursue being like him and follow my example. And if you have other models, continue to keep your eyes on them. And he transitions in verse 18. Notice what he says, for as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with many tears, many live as enemies 
of the cross of Christ. So he introduces this group of people that, that presumably the, the church there in Philippi knew. Uh, he says they're enemies of the cross. They're, they're unbelievers. They're hostile to the church. And then he's going to say just a few things that characterize them. And this is where we get into our definition of gluttony. Notice verse 19. He says their destiny is destruction. And then I want us to focus in on this little phrase. Their God is their stomach. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship, he says, is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform all lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And this is a reading of God's holy word. So here, starting in verse 19, I think Paul kind of opens our eyes to, to really what gluttony is. He says their destiny is their destruction and their God is their stomach. What does he mean by that? What does he mean as he describes these people who are enemies of the cross, they're unbelievers, and he says that, listen, they make a God out of their stomach. I think he's making the point that their desires, their stomachs, their appetites rule them. They worship, in a sense, their appetites. And Christian writers from centuries ago and even up to the present day have, have picked up on this idea of the idolatry of food in talking about what gluttony is. I just want to share a few quotes on the screen behind me. Uh, first of all, an author by the name of Bowers. Bowers says this, Gluttony is more about the direction of our loves than the contents of our cupboards. Gluttony presents the chief end of man as a table well-stocked and a stomach well-filled. Hunger becomes the great enemy. The refrigerator then stands as the temple where we find our deliverance. Notice the language of salvation and worship. Another, Frederick Buechner, says this. He says the glutton is, quote, is one who raids the icebox for a cure for spiritual malnutrition. That is, we crave spiritual significance and meaning and we go to the fridge. Mabry says this, Gluttony is the sin of looking for food to satisfy the cravings of our souls for a number of things. He says, for, for security, maybe for a sense of well-being, for a sense of, of comfort or even control in our, over our lives. He says, Gluttony is a hunger for earthly things as a substitute for God himself. And so what I want to establish at the beginning is that gluttony is the idolatry of food. It's the worship of fair. Now, if you go to Webster's Dictionary and look up the definition of of gluttony, it it doesn't go there. It's a much simpler idea. In fact, most definitions of gluttony simply say that gluttony is eating or drinking too much. It's eating or drinking, consuming more than really what we need. But I think that this understanding of, of gluttony is, is, is too simple. It, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't get to the root of the matter, right? It falls short because it fails to consider the other side of the worship of food. Yes, maybe most common, the most common expression of gluttony is overeating or, or, or overdrinking, but gluttony is a two-sided coin. And overeating and overdrinking is just one side of that coin because the, abst- the abstinence of eating, that is 
refusing to eat, or maybe having a, a snooty palate. We just like particular kind of foods made particular kind of ways might also be an expression of gluttony. Bowers calls glutton, calls uh, the person who's an undercover glutton, those who, quote, they, they maybe obsess over a particular diet or lifestyle. They are, they're anxiously counting their calories. He says they're disdaining certain foods as, as morally suspect. And then he says this, it's all a variation on the same idolatrous theme. Food has become a god. Gluttony, therefore, and I like what he says, it's a good summary. Gluttony, therefore, is worship, is food worship displayed both in excessive eating and in pharisaical avoidance. So it's a both and. So let's just not think that if we sit at the table after eating barbecue too much and say we ate too much, that that is exclusively gluttony because it's not. So we've seen what gluttony is. We've seen what gluttony isn't. I want to move on to a following question. It's a follow-up question. What are the manifestations of gluttony? So what might it actually look like in my life and in, and in your life? So here's, here's three suggestions. Brian Hedges in his book, Hit List, we've been using it rather ex- exclusively here. He suggests three manifestations of gluttony in, in my life and in your life. And so here's a confession. I've been preparing for this sermon for two weeks. I was supposed to give it last week. And I kind of wish I, I would have because then I could kind of forget about it and move on. But, but when, you, when you think about food and, and gluttony for two straight weeks, you really begin to e- examine yourself. Why am I eating this? Do I need more? Um, what's my intentionality? So three, three manifestations. Number one, gluttony may look like giving food too much importance. One manifestation of gluttony may be when we... Uh, raise gluttony to, to kind of just having a level of significance and value in our life that's just more than it should be. Like Esau trading his birthright for a single bowl of soup, gluttony makes too much of food. It gives it too high of a significance. And so I've been asking myself some diagnostic questions, and I want to ask you some diagnostic questions as well. How important is food in my life? How important is it? Of course it's important. We need it to survive, right? But, but more than that, what level of significance do we give it? How much attention, thought, and, and, and value in our lives is food? How about, how about this question? Am I disappointed when I don't get my way when it comes to food? Have you ever been in this conversations? Where are we going tonight? Well, let's go get Chinese. No, let's, let's get... Let's get Mexican food. No, let's, let's go for steak. And you're having this conversation about food, and you really, you really want Chinese food, right? But you don't want to say it. And maybe your, your, your friend or your spouse, they want Mexican food, and you don't get your way. How upset are you about that? I mean, is it just like, oh, okay, Chinese would have been good? Or are you really, like, you're a, a angry about that? Questions like this. So gluttony may look like we just give food too much importance. Number two, we treat it as an end in and of itself. This is when we look to food to give us significance, satisfaction, um, comfort, or, or, or a sense of control that really only God can and should be able to give us. And so 
questions like this. Do I, do I seek to find fulfillment in, in what I intake or what I drink? Do I, do I turn to it to, to kind of soothe a, a, a pain or a, a, a difficulty in my life? Number three, another manifestation of gluttony may, and this is to me, I think, the most clear, and I see it. I've seen it in my life. Gluttony looks like this. When we become slaves to our own appetites, we might be in the grips of gluttony. That is when we are incapable of saying no to our own appetites. Then maybe we're in the grips of gluttony because we're not the master. It's the master. We don't tell it what to do. It tells us what to do. So how good are you at saying no when you need to? Not that we need to say no all the time. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But when you need to, when you know that enough is, is enough, when that extra plate is calling or when the dessert beckons. Three manifestations. We've, we've looked at the idolatry of food. We've seen it's the worship of food, either in its pharisaical avoidance or just excessive eating. We've seen some manifestations. I want to turn now to our second point, which is the danger of food. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I never have. What are the possible dangers of gluttony in our life? I mean, there's some obvious ones, but I want to move past those to maybe some that might even be more significant. What are the consequences of, of, of gluttony? I want to suggest a couple, a couple to you, and then flesh them out. Bowers, in his uh, chapter uh, on gluttony, suggests the, more than these two, but these two, and I, and I think they're biblical and true. Number one, one danger of, of the worship of food is we actually might be guilty of hating our neighbor. Of hating our neighbor. Or to put it another way, of failing to love our neighbor. Okay, so hear me out. You may be thinking, you know, what I eat and what I drink is a personal matter. Absolutely. It is a personal matter, and it's an individual choice. However, gluttony, yes, it is a personal sin. It has corporate implications. Like every other sin, there are corporate implications. Because generally, when one person eats more than necessary, with regularity, someone else might actually be getting less than what they need. So think of a couple of biblical examples. So think of the story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16. There's a rich man. He goes unnamed. There's a poor man. His name is Lazarus. It's, it's a parable. The rich man, Jesus tells us, lives like a king in a, in a huge palace. He's wealthy. And the text kind of indicates that he has all the food that he needs, right? Every day, he's eating and feasting sumptuously, right? While, while there's a man who sits at his doorstep, and this man's name is Lazarus, and he's poor, and he's hungry, and he doesn't have any food. And, and the story goes on to say that Lazarus dies, most likely because he doesn't have any food, right? And nobody is sharing with him. So there's one biblical illustration where one man his gluttony leads to another man's starvation. Maybe a more clear picture is in 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is addressing the church at Corinth about their participation and practice in communion, which we're going to share in in just a few minutes. And they're doing all sorts of things wrong. Here's a little context. The way that the early church, as far as we know, did communion is they would gather together and uh, it would most likely be at somebody's house or maybe kind of a... Uh, a public kind of room or setting, and they would all bring food. 
So you would bring food, and I would bring food. It was like, it was like a potluck. Yes, they did potlucks in the first century, right? Christians have always done potlucks. They eat together. And as they eat together, there's a moment in which somebody takes leadership to initiate breaking the bread and sharing the wine to remember what Christ did for them. But, but the Corinthian church, kinda, they kind of got it all wrong because what Paul tells us was happening is that the folks who were rich, they were bringing lots of food. And not only were they bringing lots of food, they were consuming all of it, and they were refusing to share any of it. And then there were poorer brothers and sisters, and they may not bring any food or maybe just a, a little bit of food. And guess what was happening? The rich weren't sharing with the poor. They were consuming it. And so in a very real sense, Paul says, listen, one person's gluttony is leading to another person's lack. That's not loving our neighbors. So I don't know if you have been there. I have been there numerous times. Guilty, guilty, guilty is the pastor. You're at a potluck. You're at a family gathering. Everybody brings food. There's limited amounts of food. And maybe you happen to be first in line or you're at the front of the line. And you kind of think, okay, how much food can I get so that the people in the back of the line will get all that they need? And you're going through and you get a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And by the end, my plate, I don't know about yours, my plate, it's full. It's, it's pretty, pretty big. Um, and then what are the consequences of that on our brothers and sisters who are behind us? I've been at the back of the line before and not, I've had enough, yes, but is it what I wanted? Probably not. We have all been there. How about this? Guilty, guilty, guilty is the pastor. Growing up, uh, I was a food thief. I admit it. I stole food. And this is what it looked like. We would go out to dinner at a nice restaurant and we would have leftovers. No, no, I take, it, I, take, I take that back. My mom and my dad and my sister would have leftovers. I would not have any leftovers because I, don't, I ate everything I was given, which may be gluttonous in and of itself, but that's another story. Um, and so the leftovers would be sitting in the, in the fridge. And the next day rolls around and let's say it's breakfast. I don't particularly care for breakfast food. Eggs, sausage, eh. I don't want that. But if there's a nice piece of steak in the fridge, that looks like breakfast to me. And so I would steal it and eat it. And my sister most likely was, most often was the victim and she would say, Trey, did you eat my enchiladas? Trey, did you eat my shrimp? Trey, did you eat my whatever? And I'd be like, uh, maybe, is it gone? I go ask mom and, yes, I ate it. I, in that gluttonous moment, chose to steal somebody else's food because I would rather have steak than, you know, cereal in the morning. So in a very real sense, gluttony is not loving our neighbor well. Number two, gluttony, maybe even more serious, gluttony encourages self-indulgence. So just, just think about it, right? Gluttony is a form of self-indulgence. It's, it's our inability to say no to our own appetites. And, and here's the thing. Once that, 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 that rock, that, that stone, once it's, it's, it gets rolling, right, then it, it, it kind of affects other areas of our life as well. If we can, can't say no to ourselves when it comes to our stomach, then we very well not, might not be able to say, to say no when it comes to, to our sexual appetite, right? If we can't say no to this, well, then what's to say we're going to say no to that? And we can multiply illustrations along those lines 
ad infinitum, right? So self-indulgence. Think of this biblical illustration, 1 Samuel chapter 2. And, and there we get a story of uh, a man by the name of Eli, right? And Eli, in Israel's earlier days, had two sons who served as priests in the temple. Their names were Hophni and Phinehas. Now, I didn't, show, I didn't choose Hophni nor Phinehas. We chose Dever. But there you go, two good biblical names. Um, and Hophni and Phinehas, unlike their daddy, were not good priests. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, we see that when the people would bring their offering and they would offer their goat or their cow or whatever it was, that what these two boys were doing is they were, they were allowed to take a portion of, of, the, of the sacrifice and eat it. They were. But what they were doing is they were taking more than what they were supposed to. And they were eating it themselves. And guess what we find? Just a few verses later in verse 22, we discover that they are um, sinning sexually, so to speak, with the women who are serving in the temple court. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think there's a connection there? And I would suggest to you the answer is yes, because both are forms of self-indulgence. Bowers says this, if we make peace, he says, if we make peace with gluttony, we will make peace in one form or another with other vices as well. And so there are two dangers at least. We hate our neighbor and we encourage further sin in our lives via self-indulgence. So we've seen the idolatry of food. We've, we've seen the dangers. I want to I close by giving some practical advice. How do we fight the fight for food? How do we win? How do we overcome gluttony in our lives? Again, Bowers in his chapter is very helpful. He suggests about 10 things. I just want to give you seven because I think they're most helpful. How do we fight the fight for food? Number one, we have to choose to glut ourselves on our relationship with Jesus rather than glut ourselves on food or drink. Since gluttony is trying to fill our souls with our bellies, we must fill our souls with the only thing that really truly can satisfy our souls, which is Jesus. Remember, John chapter 6, Jesus had just fed uh, 5,000 uh, people, more than, more than that, truly, and several of them cross over the sea and they're looking for, for him. Why do you think they're looking for him? Because he gave them bread, Right? He gave them bread, they're hungry, and they come looking for the guy who can give them another free meal. And what does Jesus say? He, sa- he says, listen, you're, you're, you're wanting to fill up your stomach with bread. I want to give you something that will fill up your soul. He says in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And he's not talking about physical food, and he's not talking about physical drink. He's saying, if you come to me, I will satisfy your deepest spiritual needs. You you can have bread like you've never had it before. This kind of bread, the bread of life, listen, church, it has no recommended serving size, right? You can eat as much as you want. And seconds and thirds and fourths, they're always welcome. You can always go back to Jesus for more. So we have to glut ourselves on Jesus. Number two, We need to rejoice that Christ has atoned for our gluttony, for mine, for yours, 
and for every other sin. The good news for us gluttons is that Jesus has paid the price for our gluttony on the cross, forgiving us all of our sins. Colossians 2.13 says this, When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all. That's a beautiful three-letter word, isn't it? All of our sins. And we'll remember that in just a moment in communion. Number three, we need to believe that self-control is actually freedom and that gluttony is actually bondage. Did you catch that? So we need to actually believe that self-control is freedom and, 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 and gluttony is actually bondage. We feed ourselves the lie that it's actually freedom. If I eat and drink whatever I want, whenever I want, as much as I want, for whatever reason I want, that's freedom. But it's actually bondage because you are enslaved to yourself. You're enslaved to your own appetites, right? Number four, we need to fast occasionally. And no, I don't mean drive fast, right? Not that kind of fast. We need to fast. That is, to withhold ourselves from meals, to refrain from meeting. We need to fast occasionally. The benefit in fighting gluttony with fasting should be obvious, right? It forces us to control our appetite, to to become master over it rather than being mastered by it. But there are more than that because fasting also is meant for us to forego a physical uh, desire to stoke a spiritual desire for Christ. Psalm 4-7, David said this. He says, you have put, speaking about God, God, you have put gladness in my heart more than when their new grind... more than when their grain and new wine abound. What is David saying? He's saying, God, you make me more happy than food and wine. That's what he's saying. And when we fast, when we say, I'm going to take lunch off because I want to be reminded by the gurgling in my stomach, you know, and the pain that kind of comes up in my stomach, I want to be reminded that, God, I want, I want you more than food. Please help me to want you more. We need to fast occasionally, but we also need to feast. We need to feast occasionally. Just as occasional fasting reminds us that food is not ultimate, but God is, occasional feasting reminds us of the opposite, that food, it's a good gift from God. Drink, it's a good gift from God. He gave it to us to enjoy it. We should enjoy our steak when we eat it, right? or whatever it is you like to eat. We should enjoy it. We should thank God for it. Bauer says this, May we likewise feel such satisfaction in our union with Christ that we can, with equal resolve, skip lunch on Tuesday and go back for seconds at the potluck on Sunday. Right? So we need to, to fast, but we need to feast occasionally as well. Number six, we need to give thanks at meals. Okay, let me ask you this. You don't have to raise your hand or anything. How many Christians still do this? How many of you, how many of me, how many families, how many individuals actually pause, right? The table is set, the food is on our plate, there's a beverage in our cup, whatever it may be, and, and, and we're about ready to dig, to, dig, to dig in, right? It smells good. The aroma is coming to your nostrils and you're ready to eat. How many of us pause to thank God for the food that is before us. It may kind of sound like, Trey, that's just so traditional. Golly, man, that's just so old school. Yeah, it is old school. Jesus did it. Jesus did it. And if you're a Christian, 
then you should follow his pattern, right? Jesus prayed before feeding the 5,000. He thanked God for the food that he was about to provide. And I think if Jesus does it, it's probably a good idea for us to as well. Don't you think? I think it's a good idea. We should give thanks. We acknowledge before we eat, God, this food, it's a gift from you. Thank you for your provision. Help me to enjoy it, but not idolize it. Amen. And then we eat, and then we're much less likely, I think, to worship it. Number seven, communion. Communion is one way that we, I think, can actually learn to fight gluttony. And so we're going to partake in just a minute. Sharing in the Lord's table helps us fight gluttony, I think, in a number of ways. It reminds us that food is inherently good. God, so ponder this. God gave us a meal to remind us of what his son did for us. It's good. This is good. Bread is good. Wine is good. Juice is good, right? Whatever, whatever. This is juice. But if you happen to take wine, communion is good too, right? It is good. Communion also reminds us that Jesus is better, right? That yes, this is bread and this is wine, but that he is the bread of life and that he is superior to any portion of bread that we might take. It reminds us that sin is serious, including gluttony, so serious that that he had to die, that his blood had to be shed and his body had to be torn for our forgiveness. And, And catch this, when we share as a church in communion, it's an opportunity for us to kind of train ourselves to fight gluttony because we share equal portions, basically, right? You might take a bigger portion and I might take a smaller, but none of us, I don't think this has ever happened, I don't think it ever will, I hope, None of us get in line, and when it comes time for us to take the bread and get the juice, none of us takes the entire half and starts scarfing it down, right? I'm so hungry. Right? And none of us takes the whole cup and goes, right? Nobody does that. Because we all are sharing. We all are learning self-control. In particular, it's about lunchtime. I don't know about you, but my stomach tends to kind of growl. Uh, right before the preacher ends, and, uh, and I'm hungry, and you're probably hungry. And, and it's, it's very tempting to say, boy, I, I, that bread is pretty good. I mean, it, it's, it's Hawaiian, right? It's good. We, we, we could eat more of this, right? But we train ourselves to not do that. So in light of this, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite you into a time of reflection, a time of worship, a time of thanksgiving, a time of examination, a time of confession if, and repentance if necessary, a time of preparation to partaking of the meal of the Lord's table. We'll have a few moments of silence, and when the music starts and the video plays, you're more than welcome to come to the table. If, if you profess faith in Jesus, if you profess to be born again and follow Jesus and you believed in him and him alone to forgive you of your sins, to make you right with the holy God, through faith and nothing you could do. If that's you and you profess that, then you are more than welcome to come and to to form in two lines and to partake and to share in the cup and to share in the bread and be reminded of what Christ has done for us. So let's pray and we'll have a few moments to reflect and then I invite you, if you are a believer, to share in communion. When you're done, please exit quietly so that others can uh, meditate and and share in, uh, in quiet.